welcome to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guest today is Richard Ned LeBeau, Professor of International Political Theory at King's College London. Ned, welcome to the show. Thank you. You published a book in 2008 called A Cultural Theory of International Relations, in which you present your own constructivist theory of political order and international relations, and it's structured around familiar human drives like appetite, spirit, or thumos, as you call it, reason, fear. Can you lay out that theory for us? How does international relations work, according to this book? I'd be happy to. So I went back to the ancient Greeks because they have a richer understanding of the human psyche than their modern counterparts. Uh, In the modern era, everything is reduced to appetite of one kind or another. Reason is regarded as a mere instrumentality, a slave of the passions, in the words of David Hume. Uh, The Greeks certainly understood appetites and instrumental reason, uh, but they also had uh, a different understanding of reason, that it was something that tried first to constrain and then to educate the appetite and spirit to work with it to make for a happy life. That's a very different second level of reason that was important for them. Secondly, the Greeks placed uh, equal emphasis on what they called thumos, uh, generally translated as spirit in English, although it's not the best uh, translation, and I can't think of a, a better word for it. It refers to a universal human desire for self-esteem. We all want to feel good about ourselves. This is a very important psychological, emotional drive. The way we achieve it is by excelling in activities valued by our peer group and our society. By winning their approbation, we in turn feel good about ourselves. This is, of course, a purely personal motive. Uh, However, the Greeks understood the same way uh, Freud would in the early 20th century, or Harold Laswell among international relations uh, theorists, that human beings often um, project their... uh, desire for self-esteem onto sports teams for whom they root or countries. When they excel, we feel good about ourselves and we're sort of low when, when, when they lose. So it enters politics to the extent to which there's this transference between individuals and states, which arguably began in the age of the Greek polis. Now, uh, my theory emphasizes thumos because it's ignored by modern political writings and international relations theory. There's a very good historical reason for this. It was closely associated with the aristocracy. And in the modern era, when liberal commercial elites began to achieve power and assert their right to govern, 
they rejected uh, Thumos outright because of the nobility of the sword or nobility of the robe uh, was the justification for the very group they were opposing. So they upgraded appetite, downgraded uh, Thumos. It fell through the cracks, so to speak. But that doesn't mean that people are just as driven by the desire to achieve standing and status and in turn feel good about themselves as they were in ancient times. The same is true for states and probably more so in the modern era because of the phenomenon of nationalism, which very much heightens the identification uh, between individuals and their national state. So I argue that appetite and thumos are principal human drives and that each gives rise to a uh, different understanding of cooperation and conflict. A different sense of risk-taking is associated with a different kind of hierarchy and a different principle of justice. Uh, again, going back to the Greeks, um, I argue there is uh, something else that needs to enter into uh, a theory of politics and particularly of international relations, and that is fear. And fear is an emotion. It's not a human drive. Uh, fear is if we can imagine something bad happening to us or to someone we care about, uh, then fear arises. Fear is rife in international re uh, relations, as any realist will tell you. So, to the extent to which reason loses control of either appetite or spirit, it makes other actors worry about their own ability to satisfy their appetites, their security, their standing, uh, and becomes, or can become, a dominant motive in politics. Now, what we have, if we step back from my theory uh, for a moment, uh, we have a theory about politics based on fear. It's called realism. Uh, the central trope of all realism is that international relations is a self-help system because there's no leviathan. Everybody has to look out for his or herself. We're all fearful, and thus we behave in this way. We have a, two theories about appetite in international relations, liberalism and Marxism. They, they both center on satisfying human appetites, although they frame them and how they're achieved in, in very different ways. Uh, we have no theory about thumos, about this drive for self-esteem, uh, and which finds expression in international politics in the struggle for standing and status. And I, I distinguish between those two, but not for the moment. What I suggest is that all of these two drives, or three with reason, plus very often the emotion of fear, are present in different proportions at all times 
in different political systems. So it's therefore a mistake to try to understand international relations through the lens of only one drive or one emotion. Uh, in fact, we need a theory that covers them all huh? because they're all present and the real world uh, reflects in many ways uh, their presence. So what we have in theory are ideal types. And as Max Weber told us, we never find an ideal type replicated in the real world, but ideal types are an ideal starting point for understanding the real world and how it approaches or differs from uh, this ideal type. So I set up my theory as an ideal type and I try to uh, elaborate the different uh, approaches to conflict and cooperation, risk-taking, different kinds of hierarchy, and conceptions of justice, except for fear. There's no conception of justice in a fear-based world. And to look at uh, this mix and the kinds of policies it results in. Uh, that's the theory in general. Now, there is a second level to the theory, and that is that over the course of history, uh, there have been shifts between appetite and thumos as to which is more important. Uh, if we look at the ancient uh, Greek and Roman worlds, it's very clear that they were honor-driven societies. But honor-driven societies that were not infrequently overwhelmed by fear, as Thucydides describes so well in the Peloponnesian War. Um, I argue, and I give reasons why, that history has seen a shift from early on from appetite-driven worlds to honor-driven worlds, and now back in the modern period to worlds where appetite is once again important, but that each time there has also been a certain development in different ways in which those drives are satisfied. So I have a general theory of international politics, but also one uh, that's rooted in context and takes a broad historical perspective. That's it in a nutshell. How do realists misread Thucydides? You mentioned the Peloponnesian War. It's a classic text. It's probably a part of every IR curriculum, and it's consistently misread. How? Well, uh, we could do a whole podcast on this. Uh, let me limit myself to two examples, uh, both of which reflect a tendency by realist theorists uh, to cherry-pick uh, quotes or passages from Thucydides and to read them out of context, and of course also to read them in English, uh, missing so much of uh, the meaning uh, that Thucydides embeds not only in the Greek words, uh, but in the opposing clauses that make up your average Greek sentence. But the first is the generally badly translated uh, 
lines in book one uh, where Thucydides is alleged to say that the truest cause of war was Athens' rise to power and the fear that this um, inspired or triggered off in Sparta. Uh, often in the translations, the word inevitable uh, is used, which is not in Thucydides. At most, there's something called enanke, which is a compulsion. But there's a broader point here, and that is that realists are reading Thucydides' text through modern eyes, where we pay most attention to the authorial voice. If an author tells us, I argue X, Y, and Z, we say, this is what he means. But Thucydides is using a sophist mode of presentation, where the opening lines, this is what caused things, are designed to set in motion uh, an elaborate process of unpacking uh, that leads you to deeper levels of truth. It's a starting point, not a final point. And it's very clear that if you read book one, which is set off by this statement, and you look at the debate in Sparta, the people who had fear of Athens and its power, like uh, King Archidamus, were the ones who wanted to remain at peace. He says this is a war we could pass on to our children. Whereas Stephanolaitis and the war party um, have no fears of Athens. They're going to go march into Attica. The Athenians will come out. They'll defeat them in front of the walls and return home with the laurels of victory. This is right away a contradiction uh, between what Thucydides tells us happened and what he appears to say is the cause of war. And it makes us ask, well, why this tension? What's happening? Where do we look for it? And then secondly, the realists always assign the famous Melian dialogue, uh, which takes place well into the war in, in 416. And the Athenians... Uh, tell the Melians that the powerful do what they want, the weak suffer what they must. This is the second most uh, commonly quoted uh, lines from Thucydides. Well, if you put the Melian dialogue in context, it tells you something completely different from what the realists were saying. In the first place, it has to be read against Herodotus. And the section of Herodotus that any contemporary Greek reader would have known refers to what the Persians said to the Athenians on the eve of their invasion, uh, which I guess I could quote that uh, famous television program uh, series where uh, the Borg say, Resistance is futile. Uh, this is what the Persians are saying. Huh? The Persians say, well, we're going to kill you. This is ridiculous, so give up now. And the Athenians are saying the same thing to the Melians. 
and they copied the Persians in two other ways. Uh, Greeks always gave what was called a prophesis, P-R-O-P-H-A-S-I-S, which is an explanation for their behavior to make it look like, whether it is or not, to make it look like that it is in accord with all the conventional norms, the ways people should behave. Standard in the Athenian courts, but in common practice uh, as well. The Athenians dispense with this, which would have been shocking to readers. They simply invoke their power and their interest and screw you if you're in our way. This is exactly what the Persians did in Herodotus' presentation of them. And then there's the language the Athenians use. Uh, I guess the Greek description for it would be a brachiology, a kind of exchange of sword thrusts. Very short, striking phrases. And occasionally uh, surrounded by flowery ones. So here too, Thucydides is making the Greeks sound like the Persians and striking up in readers' minds the sharp analogy between the Persian behavior on the eve of the invasion of Greece and the Athenian behavior when they land uh, in Milos. So the Athenians have become the Persians. They've become, so to speak, the Nazis of their day. They're no longer uh, in the community of Greek states. They've descended to the level of, 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 of a psychopath. There's a pathology here. Their statement that the powerful do what they want and the weak suffer what they must has to be seen in that light as proving just how um, removed the Athenians have come from all the norms and principles of justice that generally govern Greek behavior. And Greeks believed that people who were outside a community, and Thomas Hobbes would basically make the same argument with the state of nature, were not in a position to rationally calculate their interests. And that's, of course, what's happened to the Athenians. So read that way, you get uh, a diametrically opposed understanding than that advanced by realists. In another book that you published, Why Nations Fight, you look at the uh, motivations behind the initiation of 94 different wars fought between 1648 and 2003. Uh, and among your findings was that only 19 of 94 of these wars appear to have been motivated by security in whole or in part. Um, and that by far the most common motivation for war at 58% was standing or status. Um, can you talk about the, the cases that you present in the book and how you coded your, your data set to produce yes. those findings? Yes. And, and, and let me first distinguish between um, sort of standing and, and status, if I may. Sure. I, they are very clearly related. So... The ancient Greeks, and I incorporate this in my theory, uh, were very clear that honor was won through competition, whether it was military, athletic, or playwright competitions. It was won by competing, but by the rules. You couldn't cheat. Uh, you lost standing if you cheated, 
if you perform well, even if you lost, you gain standing, which something that we understand the sports team loses, but they've put up such a good show against high odds that we come away with, with great admiration. What happens is competition for standing uh, or appetite for resources can become very intense. People, therefore, uh, have incentives to cheat. If enough people cheat, you become a chump <laughs> if you continue to play by the rules. So we undergo a kind of um, phase transition. Uh, Thucydides fundamentally tells us that this is what happens on the eve of the war. Uh, we could look at competition among European states between 1871 and 1914 and make the case that, that something very similar uh, happened, uh, that the rules went by the boards, and when that happened, fear entered the picture in a much stronger way than it had um, before. And then people began using worst-case analysis, and we all know where that, where that ends up. So this uh, distinction between honor and standing, it's not just who's at the top of the hill, but how they got there uh, that has found effects. So uh, what I do in Why Nations Fight was I sought uh, to code my cases according to uh, several different variables. Uh, first, who was the initiator of the war? Uh, and there's you know, the odd case where you could make an argument about it. Most it's, it, it's obvious. And I coded uh, multiple ways in those instances. Secondly, what were their principal goals? So here in contrast, let's say, to Kai Holstein uh, um, and others who say most wars have fought about territory. Uh, that may be true, but that really doesn't tell us anything. Why were these territories at issue? Uh, did people want natural resources like oil that could be had? Uh, did they do it because they were aspiring great powers, and if they grabbed Silesia from Austria-Hungary, they'd be recognized as a great power by others? Or did they do it because they were furious at this other country for having earlier taken something from them, and they were looking for revenge? So there are, again, motives that enter into the picture, and I tried to code the cases on the basis of, of motive, not just uh, simple goals. In doing so, I relied on uh, the most respected historical accounts of the periods of wars for my motives, engaged actually in extensive correspondence with historians in some cases. And um, what I found was that uh, any number of cases that realists without thinking attribute to security um, really were started by something else. And let me just give you perhaps the most important example, which is 1914. And it's the most important example because uh, I, World War I, these 
what determined the course of the 20th century, but it also is the war that generated all these IR theories <laughs> for the most part. So Franz Josef and those around him were concerned with Austria's standing as a great power. Uh, Franz Josef even recognized that they might lose the war, but that was less important than upholding honor. Uh, it's very clear that Kaiser Wilhelm framed his role as being a second to Franz Josef in a duel and had to behave to uphold his honor. Uh, and you can unpack this at a broader level for the policy-making um, elites, as I try to do in cultural theory, and show that uh, it's very hard to come up with a uh, realist or uh, uh, Marxist explanation for war. The most common one that's given by realists focuses on Germany and Germany's fear of rising Russian power, that it would be the uh, ham in a strategic sandwich, so to speak, if went to war. However, Moltke, who the younger, who was the uh, minister uh, of war, every war game that he ran showed that they could beat the French simply by remaining on defensive, even using primarily Bavarian troops. He was furious with this outcome and tried desperately to find a way for the French to win <laughs> if the Germans stayed on the defensive. He couldn't. Why? He wanted war with France. He hated the French. He wanted an offensive. Uh, the Schlieffen plan is not a response to a strategic need. Uh, but to one of honor and also one that gave the leading role to the cavalry. And of course, who were the cavalry? The aristocrats. So when you begin to look at it in these eyes, it looks very different than realists who, for the most part, don't deal with the historical details, uh, theorize without knowledge of the case and do it from afar. And more recently, look at the American invasion of Iraq in what, 2003. Uh, Colin Powell was perfectly clear that in his words, we had Saddam in a box. George Bush Sr. sent Henry Kissinger, Brent Scowcroft, and somebody else to lecture his son telling him there was no strategic or economic reason to go to war against Saddam. You have to look elsewhere uh, to find the reasons for that kind of use of force. Uh, I rest my case. You've done a lot of thinking about deterrence theory over the years. Um, you've written that post-war American security policy was built on a foundation of deterrence. Pretty much everywhere you look in U.S. foreign policy, we're supposedly trying to deter this or that adversary. Can you talk a bit about deterrence theory and, and what you think its weaknesses are? Yes. Um, I, I must say I, uh, I developed quite a personal interest uh, in this. 
because the Cuban Missile Crisis was my first year in graduate school. Oh, wow. And it was all nip and tuck. And Kennedy and his advisors were given great credit by the media and then by academics, people like uh, Tom Schelling and Arnold Horlick, uh, journalists uh, Ellie Abel, for having um, looked Khrushchev in the eye, and as Dean Rusk says, making him blink first, that deterrence and military might is what won the crisis. Uh, I was suckered in by this argument along with everybody else. Uh, well, they helpfully kept things secret for us not well, to did. know the truth. <laughs> they yeah. did. They did. But, you know, they were an impressive lot. Uh, they pulled off what clearly looked like a victory. We didn't know about the, the exchange of Turkish missiles at the time. So I began in the uh, late 60s doing research on my book that would become uh, uh, a book about uh, crisis between war and peace, published in 1981. It took me 11 years of work to go through these crises and ultimately to uh, the biggest task, it turned out, I only knew it in retrospect, was to purge myself of the conventional wisdom and think about it um, in a different way. I started as a convinced believer in deterrence, and I made up a list of crises about which we had some evidence, so I was using historical crises because I needed to reconstruct what had happened from the perspective of both sides. Uh, I didn't want to make the mistake of saying, well, the Soviets did this because of this, this, and this. Who knew? Who knew huh? So I did, and I had a category of crisis called brinkmanship, in which deterrence had been practiced by, let's call them as I did at the time, the defendant. However, the initiator ignored the deterrence and challenged the commitment, and a war-threatening crisis arose, which either ended in war, or uh, the initiator had to back down, as in, as in Cuba. So I started my research thinking, well, let's see why deterrence uh, failed. Uh, it must be because the defending side didn't practice it properly. Terence theories were very clear that to achieve successful deterrence, you had to define your commitment. You had to publicize. You had to tell the other side, this is where I draw my line. You had to have the military capability either to defend the commitment or somehow to punish the challenger in a way that would hurt him more than anything it could gain from a challenge. And most importantly, and perhaps most difficultly, you had to make that threat credible. You had to be believed. So I did this, and I discovered that in any number of these cases, the defending side had behaved as deterrence theorists said they should. And they were still challenged. 
This was enigmatic uh, to me. And I thought about it, and I looked for ways of reconciling the, the outcome with the theory, because who was I to question the wisdom of, uh, of all of these people? And then one day, <laughs> on the handball courts on the west side of Manhattan, I had this epiphany. Maybe there's something wrong with the Terence theory, not with the people that practice it. So I went back, looked at the data, worked it through, and decided, hmm, uh, I think I'm on the right track here, that what's happening is that the initiating side is ignoring all of the careful signals of the defendant, explaining them away or not paying attention to them um, at all. Why is this so? Why are they doing this? Under what conditions does it happen? And that was the starting point of developing my uh, sort of anti-theory of deterrence. And what I argued that um, defensive avoidance, and here I drew on the work of Irving Janis and Leon Mann, psychologists, that defensive avoidance is most likely to happen when you're committed to a policy and you therefore need to ignore threatening information because you can't change the policy because to do so you perceive as too costly. And how do you get into that situation to begin with? I discovered by going through all of these cases that it happens when policymakers faced usually a combination of domestic and perceived foreign threats that they thought could only be successfully overcome through a successful challenge of an adversary's commitment. And once committed to acting this way, they became blind to the dangers. It was far easier for them to imagine the dangers at home or abroad of not succeeding than of the dangers of making the challenge. And the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, which uh, uh, I speculated about at the time, uh, but didn't have any data from the Soviet side, turned out to be in some ways the most compelling case uh, for my theory once evidence came loose on, on the Soviet side. But I had a large number of historical cases before that. so. What I, uh, I then began thinking more about uh, deterrence, uh, working together with Janice Gross Stein, publishing a book with her and Bob Jervis, uh, another book with Janice on uh, the course of the Cold War, uh, examining in more detail the ways in which general and immediate deterrence can provoke the very kinds of crisis uh, it's designed to prevent. And the fundamental uh, reason for this is that people don't like threats. And once somebody threatens you, and you see that uh, they're building up, in this case, their military capability, you reframe your relationship with them. And not giving in to threats 
becomes more important than whatever interests are at stake in this particular confrontation. And that happens for two reasons. The first is a, a, a rational one. You believe if you give in to a threat here, you're only inviting new threats and further uh, moves against you. But the emotions come into play. Nobody likes to have to back down in the face of force, and particularly leaders of countries. So when both sides practice deterrence, as the Soviets and the Americans did, uh, it easily leads to misreading of the other side's motives. What one side did for defensive reasons, the other side interprets as offensive in intent, responds in ways which then confirm the expectations of the other side, and you set up a vicious cycle, which ends up in a very serious crisis. Yeah, I think I remember reading one of your co-authored articles on deterrence and it being a revelation in the sense that, I mean, I think you just made the simple epistemological point that it's pretty hard to measure some a non-happening. You know, if you're measuring a non-happening and then explaining why that thing didn't happen, uh, you're in dangerous epistemolo epistemological territory. We have troops in South Korea, therefore that's why North Korea hasn't attacked South Korea. It's a very simplistic way of thinking. Um, go I, ahead. If I can just, just please piggyback on that. You, you're right. So even somebody as sophisticated as Alex George, uh, who, who was a friend in many ways, a mentor, uh, read the Berlin crises of 1948-9, as deterrent successes because the Russians didn't attack. I mean, we now know the Russians never had any plans of, of attacking. Uh, we have to be very careful for deterrence to succeed the side that's being deterred has to be, you have to show that in the absence of your deterrent efforts, it would have used force. Uh, and right. that's often very hard to prove, but in its absence, um, as you say, you can't call it a deterrent success. What would you say are the principal causes of the ongoing war in Ukraine? Ah, well... Uh, I think we have to start with Vladimir Putin. Uh, we, we have a leader who sees himself or wants to see himself as the lineal descendant of Peter the Great, Catherine, Lenin, and Stalin, who has built and maintained a great empire. Uh, it's stuck in his craw when the Soviet Union collapsed and lost its influence in Europe. He was in Germany. He watched it happen firsthand. He's utterly irreconciled to the notion of Ukrainians being a different people or Ukraine an independent state. Rather, it's the homeland of Russian nationalism, and indeed Kiev uh, was the principal state, principal city. Uh, of the Rus for a very long time, uh, he, he can't accept uh, what has happened. Uh, he therefore has been using whatever means are available to uh, try to reassert control 
over what Russians call their near abroad. He convinced himself that he could do so almost bloodlessly by sending large numbers of forces uh, into Ukraine. Now, we also have to recognize that this is a man who's been in power almost 21 years, who has purged uh, anybody who displayed any initiative or uh, different understanding of, of foreign policy. Uh, he is surrounded by lackeys. He's supported by oligarchs who owe their wealth and continuing fortune uh, to his support. Uh, he shut himself off from anybody who might have uh, pointed out that he was deluded uh, in his goals and the means by which they are achieved. Uh, I think that's the explanation. Um, I find uh, I have no sympathy, let me put it that way, uh, for the kinds of arguments that uh, John Mearsheimer and others have made that he feels threatened by the West. Um, we could go into chapter and verse why uh, this isn't so. Uh, it, it's also true that uh, the West didn't behave as wisely um, as it could, uh, but it's not where the responsibility for the war lies. Uh, sadly, well, responsibility is different than explanation, right? Yes, but in this can case, can you go into why uh, why NATO expansion, for example, wasn't seen as a threat? Right. So um, I agree, and I think it was uh, Jim. Um, what was his last name? Jim Goldgeier in Washington, who first made the argument at the time that NATO expansion was not a good idea, uh, that uh, we would lose more than we would gain for multiple reasons. Uh, so I, I've been opposed to it from, from the beginning. Uh, but NATO expansion uh, was defensive. Uh, the weapons the states had were uh, largely defensive, as were their deployments and training. Uh, there were no Western combat troops uh, anywhere, uh, American or German combat troops uh, anywhere in, in the region. Uh, Ukraine was not about to be taken into NATO, although uh, here too I was shocked when Hillary Clinton started talking about admitting Ukraine um, into NATO. Uh, the, the trigger here, uh, if there was one, was the expulsion from Ukraine of uh, Russia's puppet leader. Uh, because clearly Putin saw Lukashenko in Belarus and Ukraine as uh, quasi-independent, even independent states, but very closely bound to Russia. That changed because in part of the heavy hand that Russia used. So Ukraine increasingly became pro-Western. That, I think, infuriated Putin more than it threatened him. Uh, I mean, clearly one can make different arguments, and I have no claim in, in this matter to, to know what the truth is, but this is what my opinion is.
One of the important theoretical underpinnings of U.S. foreign policy is basically what's known as hegemonic stability theory. This idea says basically that one dominant state that kind of acts as the world's policeman produces stability and, you know, an otherwise healthy international order. In a book that you co-authored with Simon Reich, uh, you argued that, quote, a hegemon is unnecessary for international stability and inappropriate in any case in today's interdependent, increasingly multi-powered world. Can you talk a bit about the concept of hegemony in U.S. foreign policy? Yes. So uh, hegemony, let's go back to Charles Kindleberger, uh, who was one of my professors at Yale Graduate School, uh, argued primarily or really entirely focused on economics that having a hegemon might have or could have avoided the Great Depression of 1929 and, and the 30s. He made the case that a hegemon uh, could enforce order, was in a position to do so, had an interest in doing so, that others would recognize and status quo states would, would respect this. Um, and certainly, uh, many of the lessons learned from the Great Depression uh, have been applied in positive ways to the post-war economy. International relations scholars, among them Bob Cohane, uh, went running with this idea, thinking it could be applied to international security. I, I think that there is uh, a, a reason for this. If you think about all these claims about American hegemony, what they really come down to is a demand and a justification for special privileges. For the United States. Uh, same game was played during the Cold War with the assertion that the world was bipolar and that there were two superpowers. This gave them rights uh, over other states. And I think Moscow and Washington fundamentally conspired uh, with each other to maintain this image because both of them gained from it they gain power over their respective um, allies or spheres of influence. There's zero evidence that the United States has ever been a hegemon. Uh, even at the end of World War II, where its gross national product was, uh, what, 40-something percent of, of the world, now what, it's down somewhere between 18 and 21, I think. The U.S., may have had a kind of hegemony in uh, the Caribbean and Latin America uh, where instead of acting responsibly the way a hegemon is said to, it abused its power, intervening in countries, supporting United Fruit and other companies against local leaders, intervening to get rid of any leader who had any kind of leftist uh, orientation, again motivated uh, by the support uh, of uh, to keep 
the support of American corporations. It was uh, imperial in, in, in the worst sense of the term. It now claims that with unipolarity, uh, the concept of my good friends and former colleagues at Dartmouth, uh, Bill Walforth and uh, Steve Brooks, that the U.S. is the, uh, here I can quote uh, uh, former Secretary of State, Madeleine Albright, the essential nation. Only the U.S. has the power and the will and the goodwill to use its power to maintain the global economy and the global peace. This is all rubbish. Every single bit of it uh, makes no sense when you look at how the U.S. has behaved and what it seeks to do uh, with its power. Economically, it's become the lender of the last resort. It's uh, abused uh, the position of the dollar so that Americans can live a higher life and pay less for it. Uh, maintaining the peace, it seems to me that much of the world sees America as one of the greatest threats um, to the peace. And certainly every time the BBC does a world survey on this subject and asks what nations do you fear the most? Who most threatens the peace? The U.S., Iran, and North Korea come in one, two, one, two, three. So others do not see us the way we see or at least describe ourselves. What's happened here, sadly so, is that international relations theorists, starting with Bob Cohane, uh, have become the lapdogs of power, uh, rather than, as Hans Morgenthau said, that IR theory should speak truth to power. Uh, it's not surprising that neorealism, hegemonic stability, uh, neoliberalism are entirely American approaches to international relations. Nobody else anywhere in the world pays any attention to them. They, they, they look at it and say, no. I mean, so much so, uh, and um, as you know, I've been living in, in Britain for some time, so I've observed uh, what happens when American theorists come over. John Mearsheimer lectured the Brits uh, more than one occasion, that uh, they were just prejudiced against realism and neorealism because there weren't any of them in Britain. Uh, and when his uh, respondents tried to argue that they were unconvinced by the arguments, uh, I got nowhere uh, with John. So th th this is a problem, and it's not an intellectual problem. It's a political problem. You also wrote with Simon about the paradox that, quote, the most powerful state the world has ever witnessed is increasingly incapable of translating its power into influence. Exactly. So if you look at crude realism, and I, I want to distinguish here, I, I'm not attacking realism as, as a paradigm. I'm, there have been many sophisticated uh, realists on Wolfers, John Hertz, Morgenthau, 
even in his own way, Bill, Bill, Bill Wolforth, cite a recent example, Michael Mastanduno, uh, sophisticated realists understand that capability is only one source of power and that power is only one source of influence. And what matters in the world is not power, but influence. The U.S. could have all the nuclear power and weapons that it wants. can't use them. It can't convince others to do what it wants by threatening to blow them up. Hmm? Uh, and influence, very different from power, influence fundamentally rests on convincing people that what you want them to do is also in their interest. That they're going to gain and you're going to gain by working together. When you do this and you're successful, you begin to build common identities. Then you begin to see the world more alike, and that increases your influence. It's a very different kind of process with different mechanisms than power. Power is exercised through bribes and threats. Now, the U.S. and anybody else, traditional empires, can only get so much through bribes and threats. The real way you get your way is, is through influence. But the U.S. often behaves in ways that undercut its influence. Uh, and that's why it's so powerful, but so ineffective. Richard Ned DeBow, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been my great pleasure. Thank you for asking all the right questions, and I, I hope that your uh, people who view this find it interesting. Mm -hmm.